Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6. Evolutionary.org hardcore podcast coming your way. Episode 122. This time we're doing Chris Comier, and I've got Steve Smee as myself, and I've got the Mobster as my Welsh buddy over here. What's up, buddy? All good. Bit cold. Winter's coming, but we're all good. Yeah, we're uh, we are rolling on this guy, so seasons change. This is this is it. This is part of the game. Um, so Chris Comier, you know, let's talk about him. Very interesting story behind him. He's another one of these guys who a lot of consistency over time, a lot of top five finishes, you know, and he basically got his pro car back in the early 90s, back when it was hard to get a pro car. Now it's a lot easier. He did 75 plus competitions, winning a dozen of them outright top five in most of them his peak stats listed 510 250 pounds shredded he was a big big guy not a guy you'd want to piss off if you were in a nightclub which we're going to get into later because he did piss someone off in a nightclub before or they got <laughs> pissed at him depends yeah. on your perspective so listen his arms 22 inches chest listed at 55 inches and he's got a tiny 22-inch waist. So 22-inch waist, 55-inch arms. You can kind of imagine that. That is a guy with an amazing physique. Born in 1967, he's an American. His nickname is the Real Deal Comier. So where was he born, guys, before I bring Mobster in? Um, you know, he was born back in Southern California, Palm Springs. That is the home of bodybuilding worldwide and especially at that time so that is the place he wanted to be for bodybuilding he he did a lot of sports growing up but he really got interested in weight training in high school he was on his weightlifting team he was competing against the best lifters in his district and blowing them away so you could tell from a young age he was gifted for bodybuilding and weight training he was a shy kid he didn't like being in the spotlight. And that's something even as an adult he took, but he loved to compete on stage. If even if you're a shy person, a lot of shy people do theater and, and, and stuff like that. So just because you're a shy person does not mean you're still not going to like to go on stage. That's kind of the way you cope with shyness in, in a lot of people. Um, you like to do, you need to get out there and put yourself out there. So um, he, he took this seriously. He was doing the NPC team nationals in the late eighties. He was winning it. He liked to research, ask questions of the older guys to improve. Years later, 1993 NPC USA championships. He earned his pro card. He got first place. Now he was ready to take the next step and mess with the guys at the high levels against tougher opponents. So in 1994, he finished second Ironman Pro. And then he was going on to Mr. Olympia. He ended up besting guys like Ronnie Coleman and Nasser. 
finishing sixth place that year. What a accomplishment for him. A few years later, 1997, nine of champions, he won it. He won the Ironman Pros four straight years, Australian Grand Prix twice in a row. He also competed at Mr. Olympia in total 10 times, third place in 1999 behind Ronnie Coleman and Flex Wheeler, and then in 2002, third place behind Ronnie Coleman and Kevin Lavroni when we have done podcasts on those guys. So you guys can check them out. So he never got the Mr. Olympia mobster, but he was very consistent during that time. And we'll talk about what he could have possibly done to win Mr. Olympia. We'll talk about some of his issues off the bodybuilding stage. But I'm going to bring you in mobster. Uh, tell us a little bit about what, what you, what you think about his, uh, his up, the way he moved it. Well, I'd say to sort of start with, uh, I had the pleasure many, many years ago of being of one of the, probably the only uh, British or English Grand Prix that I attended. And funny enough, I actually got a press pass as a result of uh, knowing who's who and uh, having my little magazine at the time and saw uh, Chris on stage. So th there's a little side story for you. For me, uh, and, and we addressed this in the pre-show, um, Chris is one of those guys who should have won at least one Mr. Olympia. And uh, for a lot of guys, including myself as, as a bit of a fan back in the day, he was a very, very big, very powerful guy. And something that was interesting, uh, which I, I knew from before, but I hadn't considered until we were preparing for the podcast. Back in the day, he was one of the guys that trained in a group. A lot of what happens you see now is with, with social media, Instagram, et cetera, you very, very rarely see a uh, top pro on camera with anybody else. And if you see him with anybody, it's maybe one other person. Whereas Chris was a, a, free, a free, free ring circus. There was a bit of a thing going on between him, uh, Flex Wheeler and uh, Rico Clinton. And although Rico never placed in any big competitions, Rico was, to, to use the parlance that the boys themselves was used, one big nigger. You had Flex Wheeler, that was a potential Mr. Olympia and an Arnold Classic winner himself, and you had Chris Cormier. And uh, there, there's there's some clips out there of the banter and looking at girls, checking them out and stuff like that, which they talked about in uh, Chris's documentary with Generation Iron. Um, real good pals and uh, not just training partners. They, they, they The way that they just talk on the documentary, these are the guys that got uh, serious, serious affection, their brothers for life, et cetera, et cetera, kind of vibe. You don't get the CD training group type stuff now. For, for whatever reason, maybe we become with, with social media a little bit more selfish or appear to be a little bit more selfish in that particular way. Whereas these guys that would hang out, eat together, etc. In fact, as you'll recall, Steve, we've done in previous podcasts when we've talked about some of the Arnold era stuff when the guys would all go out and eat together and hang out together and go clubbing together. And this was Rico and Flex and Cormier were of their ilk. It's not something you see in much modern. In terms of the uh, perception, and this is from other pros, Chris should have won a Mr. Olympia. And the one thing which we got into that seemed to let him down is that he enjoyed socializing, and I'm being very polite, a little bit too much. Uh, the American phrase when to, to party doesn't mean to go out and have a drink with one's friends and maybe dance around someone's front room. Partying seems to be a euphemism for getting high. And uh, they again just this in, the, in, in his documentary. Chris was partying before the night before competitions. 
the night after competitions, train like a demon in the morning and go out and party. And again, I'm using it euphemistically in the afternoon and in the evening to the point of stupidity, to the point of where close friends, including Flex and, and Rico, started to wonder what the hell was going on. That there was a time when, in fact, he actually collapsed at one of these parties and had to be revived uh, by the girlfriend. And, and just some crazy, crazy stuff. So you go, okay, um, the potential is enormous. Big frame. As a school, as a young, young athlete, he said pretty much every sport that you took up, you got good at. He lived in a kind of tough area, and yet mum and dad were keeping him away from the stupidity. So it's one of those so much potential, but, 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 could he, would he, should he, that kind of situation. Uh, something else that Steve and I discussed, Chris was crazy strong. And in fact, there's a lot of back and forth with Flex Wheeler in articles and again in videos, et cetera, where they talk about training styles with other athletes, and he said that Chris was one of those guys that you could, you could out-rep him, and Sean Ray talks about it. I could out-rep him, I could out-condition him, but I couldn't out-strength him. Uh, there's, there's discussions of 455-pound incline bench, 180-pound dumbbell bench, rows with 180-pound, 200-pound dumbbells, and, and, and a bunch of other crazy stuff. So it's definitely the being together was good for the reasons I've already stated, but it was also a driver for these guys. If The training together made them all very, very good bodybuilders. When you've got a group that includes two Arnold Classic winners and two guys that potentially could have won the Mystery Olympic, that's a hell of a training group right there, Steve. So, yeah, you've got that, that aspect. Um, something that a lot of uh, videos, articles, etc., don't address too much was that he had a massive, rather a bad back injury towards the end of his career. And in fact, the famous Dorian Yates video where he spews up in the rather dirty looking street outside Temple Gym was after he recovered from, from a neck injury. And perversely, he got that squatting and looking at a pretty girl as she went past and turned his head with his neck under load and had his bag, bag injury. I believe he got something of an abscess and he had to go to the hospital and learn to walk. So they got stuff kind of there. What's really nice now uh, when, when you see him, he's, he's just maintained some of that muscle tissue. He's not a small guy, not 255 pounds. He's obviously shrunk down a little bit, but he still looks like a hefty guy. And what I like now is that there's a lot of pros. He's been over to Oxygen Gym in Kuwait. He's got a lot of pros, and right now he's working with Brian Ainsley for at the time that this video has been recorded. Uh, it preps these guys. And when I say prep, it's mostly conditioning and uh, posing. He shows them, he gives them all the little things that you need to know about being on stage. I think Dennis James is a bit like this. Well, they'll give you those last minute, right, listen, you're going to be on stage for half an hour or an hour. We're going to pose you for half an hour or an hour. And, he, and all the nuances about being a professional. So this is a guy that knows his stuff and he has that respect in the industry. Peter McGough says the same thing. For all his failings and, and, and stupid things that he did, Everybody still likes him. He comes across as a real nice, affable guy, a guy that you'd like to train with in the gym, Steve. Yeah, back to you. Yeah, we're going to kind of get into a story in a minute. Um, so he's been on social media. He oh. did uh, some leg training workouts with Dorian Yates, and we're going to link the article where you can actually look at the, um, the video. Yeah. He actually trained his legs so hard that he actually threw up. And, uh, you know, we see this a lot when you're eating that much food, it's in your stomach. And if you're training that hard, your heart rate goes up 
your body's under stress. Your body's going to say, you know what? How do I correct this stress? How do I relieve this stress? So what it's going to do is it's going to regurgitate. Basically, it's going to expel everything it can out of the body. And it's going to go out one way or the other. So that's why you ever notice you eat a meal before your workout. And then during your workout, you suddenly have to go to the bathroom. Well, well, that's why. So it's very important not to fill your stomach up with food before a workout, especially a hard workout. You actually don't want anything in your stomach before a hard workout. Um, and also you want to make sure you evacuate before your workout. Sometimes, you know, something will be, it's, it's in there. And you're like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm just going to go work out anyway. I, you know, I kind of got to go, but I'm just going to go work out. No, no, no. You want to go beforehand. So, you know, you want to do, you want to urinate, you want to have a bowel movement before your workout and you won't end up sick during your workout and ruining your workout. So there's another video of him working out his chest and you can tell this guy is a big guy. So you would definitely want him to be a bouncer at, because he's very intimidating. Now, I don't know if he can fight being a big bodybuilder and Mobster and I are going to kind of talk about it in a second because there yeah. was a story and he outlines it when he did an interview with Rich Piana about how him and Mike Tyson went at it. When you're that big, people think that they can, you know, kind of um, mess around with you and you're not going to care. So yeah. he kind of uh, got into it with Mike Tyson and Mobster, you know, uh, tell us, you're a very good storyteller. So tell us about <laughs> the story with Mike Tyson. By the way, guys, Mike Tyson, we did a hardcore about Mike Tyson. That is episode 106, if you guys want to go back and listen to that. But Mobster's going to tell the story about how Chris and Mike almost uh, came to blows. So there's a couple of versions of this story. I'll try, I'll try to stick to the... The, the main story, as, as Steve says, if him and Rico apparently are both working the door of a nightclub, one assumes somewhere in, in California, uh, uh, Los Angeles, whatever. And essentially, uh, Tyson and his entourage, big entourage at that time, as you know, and he was going for his $300 million and, and spunking it, would go out with the guys and they're in the nightclub. And essentially, the guys, they're all at a drink, they're fooling around. And it's a little bit, you, you get this a lot in nightclubs. You know, look at that bouncer. I wonder if I could take him, that kind of vibe. Uh, Mike Tyson's a heavyweight champion of the world. He hasn't got nothing to prove. But the guys that are with him, you know, they're joshing. They're saying, you know, Mike should do this. Mike should do that. Look at the size of that fella down the front. He reckons he, he looks like he could take a blow. He looks like he, he, he'd, be, he'd be okay, whatever. And, and, and Tyson's taking it all on the chin, as they say, and, and taking it with amusing or whatever else. But the long and the short of it is there's a bit of back and forth. And, in fact, Rico and, and Chris both said that there was some not very nice conversations between some of the entourage and the, and the two guys working the door. You know, as if to say, Mike's going to do this and Mike's going to do that. Mike hasn't said nothing. He's just chilling. He's having a drink. He's relaxing, etc. But as they're leaving the nightclub, there's Rico hears something, Chris hears something. And at that moment, gets a big clump of hands, like open hands to the back of the neck. What we would say when I was a kid, we used to call these neck slaps. It's like an open-handed blow. It can be quite powerful and it can knock you about. And this is exactly what happened. He's fallen half a step forward, straightened up, turned around as if to say, what the hell? And it's just about to raise hands when you've got a, a goofy smile off of Tyson and say, his buddies are saying, yeah, I knew he could take it. I knew he could take it. And Tyson says, you're a big guy. You can take it. And they leave the club. Now, Rick, Tyson's all, sorry. 
Chris is all for chasing after him and kicking us, but for some reason they don't get into it. Sense, sense prevails. But as I told Steve, there was a second part to the story which wasn't told in some of these, these earlier versions. So they get invited one way or another, chasing after the girls as you to some party at some person's house, one assumes again somewhere in Vegas, and the entourage is there. Mike's minding his business over in some corner with his close friends, but uh, Chris said there was a situation, shall we be polite, with a few members of the entourage as a way of getting back for the bullshit and this cuff on the back of the head that he'd had to endure at the nightclub. And of course, now he's not working, he doesn't have a worry about losing his job, and there's a little bit of a scuffle there. There's a few blows handed out as, as a reminder, as if to say, don't mess with us guys. So it, it was kind of one of those, he tells the story now like it's a Tyson story, it's something we would say you can tell over the dinner table and it can share out there. But one can only wonder, Steve, if these two guys have come to blows, as you said, 255 pound bodybuilder for the most part is going to be winded after a couple of minutes. But if 255 pounds that's benching 450 pounds hits you, it could have been a very different kind of story. <laughs> but as I say at the time, sense prevails. Now, something you and I discussed, and you said we were getting to, we were talking about this. And, and, and there's this thing sometimes when you're trained or in condition or you look kind of strong even vaguely athletic or whatever, and maybe it's a jealousy thing, and it's kind of like a weird vibe sometimes. But some people, they're uncomfortable. They don't, they, they're, they're intimidated. It's kind of, so you get this stupid stuff that sometimes happens, and I'm sure Steve knows what I'm on about. Go out with a six pack on the beach, and the guy there is a bit smoother. You know, oh, you take steroids. That's the reason why you're in shape or whatever else. Now, this is okay when you're sober, but when drinks involved, you sometimes get stupid, stupid situations. So I was using the analogy, I do not consider myself a fighter, but I've had these kind of conversations. And I said, for me, and I'll ask Steve what he, if he's got any stories like this, I, I'm that big, if I fall on you, it's gonna be a hell of a job dragging me off and you're probably gonna get winded that way. And I've only got to hit you one time, but in terms of actual fighting or whatever else, I don't know, I'd have to weigh about 50 pounds, 60 pounds less than I, than I do right now to be anything like that, but it's kind of weird you know, just because you've got muscles, people want to fight you or they want to touch you, they want to punch you, they want to test your strength. And you've gone out for a nice quiet drink with your buddies, maybe with a couple of girls, you're having a meal and you're having this weird conversation. Has this ever happened to you, Steve? I mean, it's happened to Chris. I can say that it's probably happened to me in terms of the conversation. What about yourself? I was at a football game in New Orleans one time and it's packed, you know, packed, packed, packed. One of the craziest mm. places to go to a football game. Not your football monster. Not no, I know football. what you mean. Yeah, I've, I've heard about the stuff <laughs> not that much. Not <laughs> soccer. We're talking about <laughs> no. They're just as bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But this yeah, guy yeah. behind me, like, kept, like, pushing me and messing with me. He was cheering for the same team as me. But, you know, he was like, yeah, yeah. He was kind of like, you know, giving me little, little jabs and stuff from behind. But yeah, so it's the same thing. And like, I'm like, ooh, why is this guy like fucking like pushing me and touching me? Like every time the team would do good, he'd like push me and like grab me and stuff. So yeah, it's the same thing, definitely. If I was like a skinny guy, you know, a little 130 pound skinny guy, he wouldn't he wouldn't be like rough with me like that. So yeah, it's the same thing. And I understand, I think Tyson too was kind of testing. He wanted to yes. test what he could get away with. And yeah. kind of, you know, play around with his, you know, with his friends and stuff. So at the end of the day, Mobster and I were kind of debating on who would win if they were actually to get in the fight. And if you yeah. read some of the things out there, 
where, you know, the people tell about the stories, a lot of people who aren't in fitness and aren't in bodybuilding are like, oh yeah, um, Mike Tyson would lay that big meathead down in 30 seconds. That meathead wouldn't even be able to go 20 seconds without being out of breath. So, you know, I think that's interesting. I mean, if you put um, Chris in the ring with Mike for 12 rounds, I don't think oh, yeah. Chris would, would survive very long. No. I mean, the endurance no. that you need as a boxer is just amazing. And that's the thing with Mike Tyson. If you listen to our previous podcast with him, that was his problem. Um, he went into some fights in bad shape. So if he didn't knock the guy out right away and the guy, yeah, yeah. he let the guy stick around, then he would get himself into trouble because his conditioning was not good enough. So I think in this situation, if they were to come to, down the blows, um, you know, I, I personally think Mike Tyson at his peak would have basically destroyed him. Like he would destroy him. There's no way, even if Chris took a punt swing at him, whatever, Chris wouldn't have been able to land anything because Mike Tyson would have been able to do, you know, juke out of the way. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you think, I, Monster? I, I said with Tyson, that's it's one of those things. Chris would have to get lucky the same as what I think I would. Um, you know, just I, I can think of in, in Strongman, there's a guy I'm feeling, I was talking to a training buddy just this morning about a fellow over here called Jay Patman. And Jay's 120 kilos, probably about five and a half foot tall and thick as fuck. He's real big, strong guy. Six, seven plates aside, front squat, et cetera, et cetera. And, but he trains for conditioning. He would be the guy that would surprise you. Most of us, most of it, you know, got some athletic ability, but speed. When you when you talk about Tyson, and I think we cover it in the podcast, I said how analytical he was, that he would sit down and watch these guys' videos and train. So he would break you down. I don't know necessarily with Cormier, if it, if, if it would be that one knockout punch. Chris would have to get lucky with a punch, whereas you got the bobbing and weaving. Even at the 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 exhibition match that the Tyson had this weekend, it's bobbing and weaving, moving, ducking, and and finding your gaps. You know, you're waving your arms and coming in for that killer blow, and he's hit you three times on a rib cage, and then walked away or moved out the way of your punch because he'll see it coming. And this is the thing with Tyson. He, as much as we would say, was built for boxing and built for brutality. We, his, his intelligence, and he's actually got better as he's got older, his younger intelligence, youthful intelligence, was all about analyzing how you were throwing, how you were standing, where you were coming from, what, what, knowing what you're gonna, the way you're going to punch again. So it, I think it'd be one of those things where Chris might get one lucky blow in, but Tyson's going to hit you three or four times, and he's going to pound in that rib cage, and he's going to step away. So... Chris would have to get real, real lucky, maybe. I think that maybe the best thing to come out of this is that Chris probably thought he could. And it's nice to think that way. But uh, yeah, getting knocked on your ass is a, is a, has a way of destroying those dreams real, real quick. And I suspect that would be good for Tyson. He'd be a, a dream destroyer in this particular case. We're talking a time, I believe he was around his peak. I think he was still knocking out heavyweight. So I wouldn't want to fight. I might probably prefer to fight him now than I would have then. And again, as I, say, I think it's one of those great stories that Chris can sell. The whole thing with the real deal stuff is, of course, that he looked like Evander Holyfield, especially when he was younger. So he looked like a boxer. And maybe he put gloves on when he was when he was younger. But you, as you and I both know, training to be the kind of bodybuilder that he was uh, at his peak as, as, a, as a bodybuilder is not even close to training to be a great amateur boxer or a great professional boxer. 
don't care if you've got a six pack. I don't care if you've got big muscles. It's, a, it's very, very rare to see crossover between those two sports without you dropping some weight or training. And I'd, I'd want to put a year in, a year, minimum six months. And even that would just be for two, a couple of minutes of, of white collar boxing. So nice to think that maybe you could get a blow in and maybe take some of the entourage out. But uh, Tyson, no, I don't think so. I'd put money on Tyson to win all day long, especially in those days. So get into our uh, get into his training monster, and then I'm gonna talk about his nutrition. We're gonna talk more about his leg issues where he had to go to the hospital back in 2016. But first, talk about his training. What'd you come up with with his training? Is it the same as most of the other guys? Big in terms, as I said earlier on, in terms of his strength, he was very inspirational, and he made for some great. I mean, I'm the thing of a few layouts that bodybuilding magazines, the weeder magazines had. One is uh, Casey Viator doing some kind of insane training with some buddies and they're overloading stuff. Chris, Chris and the flex stuff, when they were able to get these kind of uh, buddy uh, training sessions into the magazine, they were just amazing photographs. When you've got, uh, you know, it's not like a, now with the spray on stuff and, and you know, some of the posed fake weights and whatever else. This was with the guys with the sleeves on, uh, you know, ragged shorts and boots on, whatever. And... Uh, to be crude, you know, three big Negro guys, uh, all 250 plus or looking 250 plus, built crazy strong. As I said earlier, on 180 pound dumbbell benches, 200 pound dumbbell rows, 455 uh, on the inclined bench. One of the videos I watched as, as research for this was uh, one of the stuff that him and Flex are doing. I think they're both running up for a Mr. Olympia competition when they appeared together and they're training with Charles Glass. And Charles is doing the hands on stuff. Where he's getting them, you know, puts touches his hand where he wants the muscles to tense up against, etc. And they looked <laughs> kind of weird because they've both got their shirts off. So there's a little bit, there's a little bit of that for the training stuff where it's been done for the video. I think uh, another one was uh, prepping for uh, one of the, uh, what do they call it, Battle for the Olympia videos, which they used to do and then show you a series of training running up to the, the, the last two weeks prep, training prep for a Mr. Olympia. There's nothing crazy about their training there's no no you know 100 rep sets there's nothing crazy with electrodes or, or whatever it's not anything that's over complicated it's all straightforward stuff but as i just said done with big big weights uh food on point etc etc so listen you're talking about basic flat bench incline bench barbells dumbbells for chest flies some pec machine work rear delt work for shoulders rows there's nothing crazy or it's quite a simple straightforward approach but again with Chris what you're seeing is what you got it worked uh, naturally athletic naturally lean and indeed that's probably one of his saving graces even when he was doing stupid crazy stuff outside the gym with getting high and 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 and, and literally spunking away his uh, winnings to the point of stupidity crashing cars and whatever he, he's natural athletic ability saved him from looking like a big fat mess on stage so i mean one of the things i'll get as i mentioned to you in the pre-show steve he was partying the night before big competitions and even so he even tells the story himself so we've seen this video of him training in the morning let's say it's a back workout and it's as good a back workout as any professional bodybuilder Low cable rows, one arm dumbbell rows, pull downs, all the stuff that you would expect. I said nothing unusual, nothing different. And then getting high in the evening, 
and then competing the next day or the day after. I mean, <laughs> if he's making any mistakes, if he's making a mess of his training, it's, he's doing the stuff that we'd all do and then doing the stupid stuff, almost like kind of messing it up. And in fact, you and I touched on someone else that was doing this kind of crazy stuff between fights when we did the John Jones podcast. I can't understand, Steve, if you're going to work really, really hard in the gym, and that's not muck around. Chris was working really, really hard in the gym. If you're dieting, if you're in the, in, in the posing room, putting half an hour or an hour posing in, if you're doing all the anabolics and the performance-enhancing drugs that this guy needs to do, what the fuck are you doing getting high the night before a competition? What the hell's that about? I don't know. Chris hasn't stopped me as a guy that needs to sort of self-destruct Something else you and I addressed in the pre-show, and if it's a moral in the towel, which I said was a phrase I used earlier on, why do some of our members, forum members included, do this kind of stuff? I I I, I can't understand it. If, if you you've you've done fasting, you got into competition, you've done powerlifting, you know some of the training that I'm on about, how much of a grind some of this stuff is. I'm trying to figure out mentally where Chris was. Was it just because he thought he could get away with it because of his athletic ability, or is it kind of like a self-destructive thing? I don't know if of the training that I've done in the past, what I've been hanging out my ass in the last few days before a competition, before I rest and recover and, and, and go out and lift and do my best. The hell that I would go out doing any kind of partying. What's, what's, what, can you figure it out, Steve? What's that all about? At the end of the day, man, it's a compulsion. It's an addiction. It could be childhood issues it could be it's just you start doing stuff alcohol recreational drugs these are addictive habits these are addictive substances so you start using them it's hard to get away from them man and a lot of people they he uses it before a competition he's extremely nervous going into the competition so when you have some type of issue like with nervousness or anxiety that's when you're going to turn back to your addictions that's why it's a bad idea to attempt to get rid of an addiction and also bring these types of stresses and anxieties into your life. So you want to, this is why this year with, with the pandemic of 2020, a lot of people who, who've been trying to kick addictions have had a very difficult time because they've been under stress. They've been on a, you know, um, all this stress over everything. So, you know, that's, that's why they do it. It's a coping mechanism. So it's a lot of it is psychological. So, you know, yeah. we'll get into his nutrition. If, if it wasn't for all this substance abuse, there's no telling, you know, what he could, he, he could have done. His genetics are fantastic. Now, when he was eating right, he did eat good. I mean, there's no, he doesn't ever talk about, you know, cheating or, or stuff. So yeah. he talks about yeah. avoiding sugar. He didn't have any issues with, with his nutrition itself. Um, he stuck to the typical bodybuilding foods, the eggs, the chicken breast, the steak, the turkey, the fish, the greens, the rice, the potatoes, the oats for his carbs. Um, so carbs, proteins, you know, the good fats, salads, lots of green vegetables. So he, he, he there wasn't really no evidence of that. Um, I mean, we don't know what he did behind closed doors, but he, he had a really good diet, obviously. Um, so his issues were substance abuse. So mm. let's talk about some of the things, though his health issues, his back and legs, uh, Momster alluded to it earlier in 2016, they had stiffened up and he had to go to the hospital. He was begging for pain medication on the way to the hospital and everyone was scared of him. 
because he was a big, big guy. Um, and you see a guy of that size, you don't know what to make of it. You know, it's, I think, I, I think a lot of these uh, EMT guys, they, they get intimidated when they see someone like that. The, those are anyone would, would get intimidated, but especially someone who's trying to save someone's life. Um, you're seeing a patient. It's kind of like having a brand new luxury car and taking it to the auto mechanic with a problem. The me auto mechanics can be like, what? you've got a problem. You only have 500 miles on this car. And you already have problems. It doesn't make any sense. So I think that's what they, what they kind of were intimidated by. The cops were even scared to go near him. Um, he talked about, he wasn't able to pee for over a day. He, they were running many tests and they found out his spine was infected. He was actually close to being paralyzed supposedly. Yeah. He blamed yeah. it on a lifting energy and in, in, uh, injury from, he was 19 years old squatting that had gotten worse as he aged. Um, but we know, you know, from mobster and I have looked at some of these studies on the kidneys and when you are that size and you're using all the compounds he's listing and you're using these recreational drugs, it puts a huge tax on your kidney. So kidney issues, it's a domino effect. Once you start having problems with your kidneys, it's going to have a domino effect on the rest of your body. So, you know, let's get into it. We don't have much time left, but we're, you know, we've got about 20 minutes left. So let's talk about steroids. That's what you guys want to know. What was he using at his peak, Mobster? So we can kind of go over the cycle. Um, I'll let Mobster kind of give his thoughts. So in the article I wrote, which we will link, I kind of laid out a cycle that we speculated that he would have used when he was getting second place at Mr. Olympia's, you know, back in, you know, the late 90s. Um, back in 99 and 2002, early 2000, very early 2000s, around the uh, tech boom era, the 99, 2000, 2001, 2002, he got two second place finishes at Mr. Olympia. So what was he using? Well, first off, right off the bat, you know, we can assume that he was using HGH. HGH is growth hormone, human growth hormone. And what HGH does is it will go basically produce your cells, get your cells split, get your cells growing inside the body. So it's a must for these guys to get that big. They must use a large amount of HGH day in and day out. And that's very, very important. With the HGH, you're going to need to use insulin because they need to bring back down their blood sugar. If you're not using the insulin with HGH, your blood sugar is going to go sky high. So insulin was also widely used around this time, although I don't mention it in the article, it is kind of like peanut butter and jelly when it comes to the HGH and insulin protocol. So these guys will use the insulin before meals. The reason you use insulin before meals is you create a sponge effect in the body. You inject the insulin, your muscles, your muscle resistance starts to go up. You take the food, you take the shakes, you take your whey, you take the protein, and that sucks up into the muscle. And it allows you to grow bigger and bigger. So the HGH and insulin both together give that synergy combined with great genetics, combined with the steroids he's using, combined with everything, his nutrition, it works out for him. Now, if you're a regular Joe and you use insulin, you're just going to get fat. You don't have his genetics. You're not taking all this HGH. You don't have your diet dialed in as good as he does. You're not taking all these steroids that he's taking. So it ain't going to work for you, 
but it works for these guys to get big. Another steroid that has to do with nutrition partitioning is Trenbolone. Trenbolone is the best nutrition partitioner steroid out there of all the main steroids. And bodybuilders around this time, they were using Trenbolone. Bodybuilders of the, of the late 80s and 90s, they were much bigger than the bodybuilders of the 70s and early 80s. Why? Trenbolone was a big reason why. Trenbolone was abused around this time. So we could speculate Mobster, he was using a lot of Trenbolone, a gram or possibly more of the Trenbolone. It is a must. You're not going to be able to compete against your competition without using a lot of Trenbolone. Now, along with the Trenbolone, you were seeing other guys. He might have used some Primabolin, a lot of Primabolin, not some, a lot, maybe one and a half grams of Primabolin, or he could have used EQ, a mild steroid like that, to get it in there and help with protein synthesis and all those other wonderful things that anabolic steroids do. So that's thrown in there. It's a more mild compound. The trend is not mild. The trend is excessively strong. So a mild compound in there is something you would throw in there to not kill yourself pretty much and not feel like crap all the time. And then the testosterone, you know, they use testosterone in this time, um, 15, 20 years earlier, they did not, but the difference is they had access to aromatized inhibitors in this time. So they could use their ADEX, their Letro as their aromatized inhibitor. Aromacin wasn't around yet. Aromacin did not start appearing till later on in the 2000s. So um, I don't even think it was uh, developed yet at, in, in the late 90s. I think it was developed in the mid 2000s. So they would have not been using aromacin. They were probably using Letro. Letro is a very, very strong AI. It's not something you'd want to take on a typical cycle. But for these guys, they took it. It was very, very strong. It nuked the estrogen strong like nothing else. And then <clears throat> ahead of the competitions, Winstrol, Anavar, those, the drying compounds, maybe even something like Masteron, which is a hardener. Winstrol, 100 milligrams a day, Anavar, 100 milligrams a day, Masteron, a gram a week. Um, and that, that would provide the hardening effect. So those are the different steroids that we could speculate that he used. And he would use those drying compounds, the hardeners ahead of the competition. He would cut off the testosterone. If they were, they kind of figured that out. Let's cut off the testosterone early. We don't want it in our system. We don't want to be bloated when we go on stage. Mobster, what do you think? What do you, th what do you think he did? I'm, I'm, I'm looking at down the list here. I'm saying Winstrol sure for conditioning. Anavar, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he actually run that a little bit higher, up to 150 milligrams. That's way more than most people would ever need. And we talk about this on the forms multiple times. 50, gram, 50 milligrams is a sweet spot. But I wouldn't be surprised if he run that a little bit uh, higher for short periods of time just to maintain the levels of strength that we know that he had. I agree 100% with the testosterone infinite. And as Steve said, this is a pre-competition cycle. It would be tweaked and changed in a run-up to a competition. So the one and a half grams a week, I think that's your best, almost certainly a given. You could probably put money on that. The Trembolone, again, uh, it, for me, for most guys, a, a gram a week, especially with everything else, would be way, way too much. But we're talking about a professional level bodybuilder with the genetics he's got. And again, with the 1,500 milligrams of Primo, and as Steve said already, with regards to the HGH and the I, uh, insulin, I agree again. What I'm actually thinking about that is not included here 
maybe some DECA for joint relief. Now, we know this is not really a joint repairer as such. You, you feel better on it. You'll go back to the same problems you got off. But with the weights that he was shifting, Steve, especially pre-competition, I would not be at all surprised. And with that neck injury to consider uh, building up over the years to the point that we talked about earlier on, there'll be some maybe some paint relief with you, pain relief using DECA. And again, competition, uh, two, two drugs not mentioned on this list, one would be some sort of diuretic. And bearing in mind what I've just said earlier on with, with his habit, or occasional habit of partying the night before a competition, I can see a reliance here on diuretics to, to maintain that contest shape. And something else, that Chris is quite a well-rounded bodybuilder with a good physique that, as I said earlier on, other pros agreed that in the right place at the right time could have won the Mr. Olympia. However, he suffers from, from the black man's weakness, and it's not all black men, of course, but from the black man's weakness for poor calves. So maybe, and again, this is pre-competition cycle we're talking about, for competition, maybe escaline or something like that as a site enhancement into the calves. With the delts, the chest, the back, the waist, the thighs that this, with Chris had, his arms, you don't, need to, you don't need to put anything in those places, but his calves, he had a little bit of a weakness in the calves. And something else I consider, Stephen, I made notes as we, you, you were talking, I'm thinking of Lee Priest and Paul Dillette when, when these, these at one point shared uh, an apartment. So I wouldn't be the tiniest bit surprised if the cycle that we're looking at here and you guys that listen to the podcast can go off and, and listen to previous podcasts and the articles that we link to in those podcasts and compare it. Did, did Chris and Flex and Rico all have similar cycles. I would not be in the tiniest bit surprised if they did. I don't think it'd be any secret between them. They're very close even now. Talk about brothers for life and you know, getting emotional when they say how oh, Chris nearly died and stuff. So I'm thinking if they were that close together, they're partying together, they're going out on dates together, they're eating together. It'd be one of those things where drugs would probably, especially performance enhancing drugs, would be open to discuss. And I would not be in the tiniest bit surprised. I wouldn't even be surprised if they helped inject each other. That's that. I've considered that relationship. I've held, you know, <laughs> not, not, not something I'm making a habit of, but I've, I've given guys a TRT jab when they've asked me to. So I can see these guys helping each other with injections and, and, and whatever else. And so it wouldn't be the tiniest bit surprised if they, they use the same source together and it's, uh, they probably compared cycles and made notes on each other's cycles and maybe even not everything. Some things would need to be different for the different body types and especially for the not everybody was competing at the same time, but I would not be the tiniest bit surprised if they were yeah, that's helping the jab, comparing cycles, doing similar amounts to get at the same time, and especially so if they were running up to a competition. But again, Steve says quite properly, the, uh, the referred to cycle is pre-competition. Competition would differ, the amounts would differ, stuff would be taken in, stuff would be taken out, and these guys would be working. Charles Glass is a great coach, so there'll be a lot of discussion. I believe they've all worked with nutritionists at some point as well. I can see a lot of conversation going back and forth with their buddies. These are, these are, I, mean, I think the only thing they didn't do is they didn't live together. They pretty much did everything else. I would not be surprised in the slightest if they parted with the, with the same women at some point or other as well. That would, so when it comes to that kind of stuff, you have these, let's be honest, we have these conversations with buddies. We talk about what we do. It's not always discussed on the forum in that particular way. Although we obviously we, we talk about the cycle we're going to do and we want advice. This is people sitting down, uh, they're eating in the firehouse, they're having the food together. I guarantee those conversations are taking place amongst that close of a group. Not necessarily between a lot of pros, but between this group of pros, 
hundred percent. And yeah, so that I, I think at times Flex and Rico and uh, Chris were probably all using the same steroids, the same amounts, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously as they got more experienced or competitive, and in fact, Flex talks about this, if they were in the same competition, it was very competitive because you're competitive in the gym, you could competitive on the stage. Maybe then those little nuances, those little secret things that they don't want the other guy to know, that's how competitive some people can get. There'll be a little bit, then you won't be sharing all the information that you might have, those little secrets that your nutrition has given you or your guru has given you. Uh, and again, this is something Chris does now, so I would not be surprised. But the rest of the time, pre-competition, I, I think there's a bit of sharing of information and, 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 and almost certainly helping each other out in that particular regards on whatever, Steve. Back to you. You don't want to you don't want to talk too much about your steroid use because what happens is you'll lose repping opportunities, opportunities to um, rep oh, products and yeah, supplements yeah, yeah. because the yeah. supplement companies want you to pretend that you got the way you are from mm -hmm. the supplements, not from the yeah. steroids. So there's not much benefit discussing, you know, your steroid use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because people fact, are thinking, oh, it's just steroids. It's just steroids. In reality, 95% of it is genetics, but we don't, yeah. you know, people don't want you to know that they want mm -hmm. you to, you know, buy their supplement. <laughs> they want you to think it's 95% supplement, but really yeah. it's 95% genetics and 0.01% supplement. In fact, let's just to address that particular point. I'm talking about private conversations amongst the fellas here. In fact, Chris actually addresses this in, in, in the documentary. He says that uh, at one point, he was sponsored by MuscleTech, and I think we're talking about a six-figure contract. There was a suggestion, which might be wrong, of something around $400,000. And towards the end of his career, it was one of those, we're not going to pay you kind of situations, and the check's not coming to come this month because you haven't done this and you haven't done that. And this is 100%. In fact, I've just seen some recent uh, videos on this particular subject. And in fact, Dave Palumbo addresses this in a video just literally in the last couple of days. It's quite simple. I think it's one of those Ask Dave videos. So you sit down and go, right, why don't top professional bodybuilders talk about their cycles? And yet second tier and third tier bodybuilders do all the time. Second tier and third tier bodybuilders need the attention. They need people to be interested in what they're doing, whether it's on Instagram or on YouTube. And Rich Piano is a great example. He's a very good bodybuilder, winning, I believe, the Mr. California and placing very well as a heavyweight, but an absolute freak when he stopped competing and made a big name for himself following on with the stuff with Mutant, talking about stories and a great deal. And, and, and Chris is quite popular. In fact, I've said this for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's in their contracts. I don't care what the reporter asked, question the reporter asked, muscle tech or whoever that's sponsoring you, giving you six figures, does not want you talking about steroids when they want you to sell supplements. They want the buyers to think the supplements is doing everything. They do not want the steroids. All your training, all the genetics, it's got to be this product. It's the, this is a product I gave you. This is why he's a champion. Not the genetics, not the training, not the dedication, not the diet, not, not the steroids. Then there's another thing, which I've addressed in previous uh, interviews and podcasts, etc. It's quite simple. If I make a name for myself as a world-class athlete, and I'm out there in the media, and this includes being in national papers sometimes, or the Mr. Olympia, sometimes the big competitions make the locals, they make the state paper, they make the national papers. Do I want the feds knocking on my door? Ronnie Coleman talks about having to get prescriptions and having 
the feds asking questions and being interviewed and all that kind of stuff in 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 um one of the podcasts that he's done you can't make can't become famous even if in the bodybuilding circle without getting attention the last thing i want to do is have police knocking i mean well, you know steve knows i've had the police come here over confiscation of psalms by customs which got sent to me in a post now i'm not a famous bodybuilder can you imagine being a famous bodybuilder and sitting here talking about your steroid cycle you're going to get slated in the newspapers you're going to lose money on your contracts you're not going to get all the appearance for you've made a name for yourself some people like it some people don't ask lee priest but do you want the police knocking do you want the fbi knocking we we addressed this in a previous podcast even i did when milos had his house raided well, steroids, they didn't find anything. I don't want my house getting raided. And if I'm a professional bodybuilder, I want my lifestyle nice and quiet and simple and straightforward. I want to train, I want to eat well, I want to compete. That's my vibe. I do not want to have to deal with legal issues. I don't want to have to get Rick Collins, the bodybuilding lawyer, to come in. I don't want none of that bullshit. And that's me now. <laughs> I certainly don't want it as a pro bodybuilder. So we talk about these things on a podcast because we've got the freedom of speech to do so. And we can take a guess. And Chris can talk about these things a little bit more now because he's not a top professional bodybuilder. And he's out there working with guys. And in fact, in a perverse way, it's actually good business for him because it shows that he has the knowledge. And when people come to him as a customer, they can, as a client, as a, someone he's going to work with, he can show that he knows what he's talking about. But uh, <laughs> as a professional bodybuilder, there's so many reasons. Young guys like to ask these questions. Want to be bodybuilders and, and tier two and tier three guys like to talk about it because it makes them seem kind of insta famous. But the top professionals can't talk about it for so many reasons. Do you want to be stopped? Listen, Chris is a big black guy, especially back in the day. Black guys talk about being stopped by the police all the time, just having a nice car. Can you imagine being having a nice car and the drugs raid? Have you got any steroids on you? We know policemen that take stories. We know fed guys that take stories. This is such a, it's such, I wouldn't want to draw that kind of attention to myself, Steve. I don't know about you. That's just, yeah. Yeah. The and, guys yeah. Get their heads right well, the Sorry, other attention you don't want to bring to is the health ramifications. And we saw him with, oh, yeah. we talked about one, uh, episode 117 about the Flex Wheeler situation, how it got so bad. Now, in, in, in Chris's case, I mean, he almost got paralyzed. Mm. So, now were steroids directly involved maybe not directly but they were indirectly involved because we've seen studies that have shown that you know you use anabolic steroids you abuse anabolic steroids it's going to have an effect on the kidneys 90 percent of people who abuse steroids end up with kidney issues because of that size and because of the steroids you use this is two very quick good examples as relating to what Steve said. So straight away, he's been, he's been treated or perceived a particular way by the police officer, the guy who didn't want to move him. When he gets to hospital, the, the, the medical staff there are like, so what's the issue here? And it's and in steroids. And then, of course, we're talking about issues with the blood test, issues with recovery. I believe, uh, if, if, here, here's a thing for you, Steve. So they had him in an induced coma post-operation and he lost 60 pounds. He woke up and, and couldn't quite get his head around the fact that he, he, he was a different looking guy. There are some uh, clip, video clips and photographs 
of him learning to walk after the championship was a 60 pounds of muscle tissue. So he that must saved. have gone into hospital. I was going to say hospital. that losing the 60 pounds saved his life. Your body is like, yeah. I don't want this muscle. I don't want yeah. this size. You got to get rid of this. And he's got so much muscle and no fat to lose that you're going to lose about, muscle in the process. You know? But what about, for example, we've been asked this question. Guys get injured and they're on a steroid cycle or they get ill and on a steroid cycle. And this is just about as ill as you can get, very much with Flex Wheeler. Having that amount of steroids in your system is not going to help you recover from the injury that you got. In this case, a spinal operation is not having your red, you know, your RBC count real high, having that much testosterone in your system when you're not moving, you're, as I say, in an induced coma, laying on the bed, not physically restrained yeah. from hurting yourself, is not going to help you recover from an injury. It's not going to help you recover from an operation. It's the inflammation. inflammation from the anabolic steroids, yep. Yeah, I mean, literally, for example, the anesthetist was going to have to look about how much uh, gas and air is going to have to give him or any drugs he's going to need to knock him out. What's his recovery like? Do they have to make adjustment for blood pressure? Is he going to bleed more? Do we have to give him more blood during the operation? Is his, What's his recovery? like? They might have given him some steroids to help him recover if he was a normal guy, but here's a guy they actually want to decrease the amount of steroids in the system. So in terms of how the medical professionals from EMC, the, the the, the, the cop right up to the surgeons approaching them are going to come in here with a negative attitude. They need to run a bunch of tests that was going to cost you more money in America, especially just to see what the hell's going on. They're going to kind of want to take some of that steroids out of your system or wait till that amount decreases. And here's he needed a major operation. And then, as I said, how much of an effect did it have? He lost 60 pounds of muscle. Well, lost 60 pounds, full stop. But some of that would have been muscle. Uh, and, you know, maybe the only saving grace in terms of his athletic ability uh, and perhaps uh, indeed, arguably, even recreational drugs with that amount of time in hospital and recovering, et cetera, et cetera, is that his mindset to recover would have been on, on point. He, he, the, the desire to walk again, the desire to recover, the desire to get back into the gym. I mean, one of the things he actually talks about in a nice way, for all, all these negative things aside, is that the, once he was able to leave the hospital, I believe he was in the gym within a couple of days. So it's that the, the perverse uh, addiction that all of us guys, hopefully listening to this podcast, have is that need to train. And again, in terms of recovery, in terms of muscle tissue around the spine and, 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 and the legs, et cetera, walking, maybe getting back in the gym as a form of rehab, and for your mental uh, health uh, is a good thing. And that's maybe the one saving grace here. But yeah, it's, it, you, you've got problems with, like we talked about earlier on people's perceptions when you're out drinking, the same thing applies to hospital. This, you might be seen to look at as a really big healthy specimen, but in reality, you're about to have a major operation on, on your spine that you could potentially disable you for life. And I've, I, I, as a doctor, as a surgeon, and a team of medical professionals have got to make sure that everything else is on point. And here I am dealing with all the drugs that you've taken just as a bodybuilder. So it's, it's, it's potentially an issue there. And indeed, I've had uh, interviews, medical uh, examinations or whatever else over the years, even if it's just of like every five, 10 years, 40 plus, 45, 50 and so on and so forth, where they say to you, oh, have you used steroids as part of the conversation? And that's just for me. And I, you know that my stuff is real low level cycles, long time between cycles. It's not professional. Can you imagine a bodybuilding, being a professional bodybuilder and having to deal with some of these issues in terms of your steroid intake when you go for anything vaguely medical? 
I don't know things in, and again, Steve knows because he's in America and I'm not, thank goodness, in terms of the medical cost. You, you, if you can, one of the things we see, and this is going on a forum, we sometimes see guys on a forum talking about having the medical insurance doesn't cover it, and yet, but they'll spend a thousand dollars on a cycle, but they won't pay out the extra for the insurance. Equally, if you're on a cycle and you have got good medical insurance, you can end up having to pay more for these kind of situations, which, fingers crossed, it doesn't happen. But in, in Chris's case, did happen. I wouldn't want to be in Chris's situation. I wouldn't want to be in his shoes, being a top professional bodybuilder, having to have a spinal operation. Uh, and you're probably talking about another $100,000 out-of-pocket expenses sleeve or whatever the hell's going on at that particular time. I think we didn't hear any sort of great sob stories about the money afterwards. So I think maybe his medical insurance covered it, but certainly would have depends. Yeah. It depends uh, if he's part of a family plan, if he's married. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if he's married. Uh, that's not talked about on here. They don't buy no, the no, I believe he's got a kid now, but uh, certainly in, as a professional bodybuilder, I don't think he was. I think he might be now. I know that he talks yeah. about the documentary, which has been shot in the last couple of years, having a son. So yeah, but these, these top-level bodybuilders, they usually use – there's a, a group of doctors that they'll use that deal with bodybuilders. So the doctors mm. – are going to know but the problem is if you have to get rushed to the hospital you're running into mm -hmm. doctors you've never met yeah. before that don't know your history don't know your anabolic steroid use they don't understand anything about anabolic steroids that's a nightmare situation to yeah, have definitely. to be because a lot of hospital you don't get a choice at the hospital that the ambulance takes you to um, you don't get to choose hey yeah you know what can i go to this hospital it's like 20 more minutes can you take me to the hospital they're gonna be like they're gonna laugh yeah. at you they're like no you're going to the hospital we decide to take you to not the hospital that you want to go and not we're not taking you by helicopter an hour to go see your regular doctor he's gonna have to drive his ass to the hospital if you want to see him what about the medical insurance companies if you if you don't tell the medical insurance companies what you're doing and then you have to end up with this major situation that requires proper surgery and, and an immense amount of time recovering believe you and me people it's one of those things if you haven't told them that you're taking certain medication you're best to get a prescription from a doctor if you do so so that you can at least have yourself covered by the insurance because i do not want to be in a situation of going from major surgery hospital and then having my american insurance company if i if i lived in the states not paying out because you didn't fess up that you're using steroids or recreationals or any, it's just a stupid situation. And as I said, my understanding of the story regarding his back injury is that there was no great shakes in terms of needing the money or having to ask for money or whatever else. So we're gonna assume that in his case, it was all covered. But if you're in a situation, guys, this is a bit of advice again for us. Pay the extra, get, get full coverage. If you can afford to do it, or if the company you work for includes medical insurance, ask them what's included. Because otherwise, out-of-pocket expenses. And if it's out-of-pocket expenses, I've had this conversation with Steve via the forum. I've seen the numbers. It's obscene. For, 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 if you go and get your hands stitched up, they'll charge you a couple, just, just a couple of thousand dollars, Steve. It's obscene, yeah. man. It's, like two, it's a month's wages. For, for 10, 15 minutes yeah. in ER. You, just, you, walk in, you walk into a hospital, it's going to cost you a couple grand just to walk into the hospital. <laughs> and if you don't pay it, they'll, they'll send you to collections. They'll bill you. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. You, you, you Lose your fucking house. Either pay it or, or we ruin your credit. You have, you have so imagine then, right? You're in this situation of being a top professional bodybuilder. You're doing this steroid cycle. You're making a great deal of money. I don't care if he's getting a six-figure contract. 
you'd lose all your salary paying for the out-of-pocket expenses that's not covered by your medical insurance. So, guys, and I said this only a few minutes ago, I'll say it again. You don't cheap yourself out in this regard. So if I had to do it, I wouldn't want to. We don't have it here in the UK, thank goodness. But if it goes that way, and who knows, it may well do. There's already some sort of conversation that we might have to pay certain, you know, just a, a small fee to go and see the doctors now. This kind of stuff. You're, you're, you're a GP, what you call an MD. I don't ever want to be in a situation of being a top professional bodybuilder, six-figure contract, doing what I need to do to be the top-level pro that I need to be, and then my insurance company refused to pay that because I haven't got the proper coverage or I didn't fess up or I didn't get a doctor's permission for some of the things that I was doing. So the insurance company screws me out. And now I'm looking to lose my house, quarter of a million dollars. For the kind of surgery that Chris got, I think we're talking six, seven figures, Steve, but as far as the insurance company, certainly six figures. Yeah. Anything, anything with having to do with kidneys like that, you're looking at at least 100 grand, 125 yeah. grand. So yeah, the spine, upper yeah. spinal stuff. It's yeah. got to be six. So, so those of you listening to this, that's another good reason not to abuse anabolic steroids because it's not going to yeah. end well for you. It's going to come back to bite you. I, you know, like, you know, I, uh, gosh, I mean, I, I, in my, my early thirties, I, uh, I went pretty hard for, for a couple of years, but you know, injuries kind of set me back where I had to back off. It wasn't for the injuries. Mm -hmm. I, who knows what would have happened now? I'm much more conservative. I take care of my body. I run blood work. I'm, I'm aware of what's going on. So, you know, for me, I don't have to worry, but if you're abusing steroids throughout your twenties, throughout your thirties, you get into your forties and fifties, your kidneys are taking a beating year in and year out. So it's, you really have to be aware of that and make sure you, you know, you have good coverage and make sure it doesn't come to the point where you're going to have these kidney problems because yeah. these organ issues are domino effect to the rest of your body. All right, Monster, yeah, finish up. We have 20 seconds. Finish very, very quickly, fella. Then something that Steve talks about all the time, the blood test, go on the forums, check out the links in uh, Steve's uh, signature line underneath his post for a way of getting reduced prices on blood tests, because I've seen people that say $1,000 on a cycle, but my insurance only covers two blood tests a year, pay the extra fillers and use the link that Steve gives you. And finally, look after yourself, whether it's N2, guard, with your liver and your kidneys and your organs, low level cycles. And if you get injured, sort the injury out, recover, rehab, rest, and then go back in the gym. You've got the rest of your life to train. You don't have to, we don't want you having major operations. We don't want to hear six figure bills and we want to keep you guys healthy and strong. Steve. All right, guys, that sums it up. This is another episode, guys. We don't have a preview on the next one. Uh, we haven't got that yet, but we're not going to share it. We're going to keep it a secret. So you guys are going to have to just wait till the episode comes out next week. For Steve Smee and the Mobster, this has been Evolutionary Hardcore podcast we will talk to you guys then have a good one guys take care of yourselves and take care of each other bye-bye